0: Let's hit it. Commanding you to bow down. I'm on your side. By branding you as a rebel. But you're not. A traitor. This isn't freedom, this is fear. are not the government the government is not us We doing everybody, man, that intro really does pump me up. I love it, love it, love it. Not too much on deck for today, just some news, a few news stories that I'm interested in, and then I think you might be too. Some interesting legislation gonna be at the top. After all the news, I'll I'll tell you about a Quillet article that I'm very interested in. I don't know why I started doing a segment about Quillet articles, but (laughs) I did. Um, It's probably just because I like them. And I like what they have to say uh, about free expression from an an unopinionated angle. They don't really, all they really care about is free expression. They don't really care about if it's left or right or center or anarchist or whatever, free expression, they just want free expression. They don't like fascists, which is why I'm a fan of them. Let's jump in with some uh, interesting legislation. This isn't really interesting legislation the way that I like to do interesting legislation, which is to find bills that are on the floor that people might not know about. And kind of contextualize them and, and do some reading on them and, and and let people know what's going on in their government. No, this is interesting legislation that's been defeated in the House. There was a, uh, a bill on the floor, uh, it was a right to try legislation. This is from uh, the Washington Post. House defeats right to try legislation to allow expanded use of experimental drugs. From Lori McGinley on March 13th. In a major setback for Republicans, the House rejected right to trial legislation Tuesday evening that would have been that would have allowed seriously ill patients to bypass the Food and Drug Administration to get access to experimental treatments. The vote came after a spirited debate in which GOP lawmakers portrayed the measure, which was strongly backed by President Trump and Vice President Pence, as a last chance at survival for desperately ill patients. Democrats said the bill would weaken critical FDA protections without addressing the fundamental obstacles to experimental drugs. Republican backers brought up the measure uh, under a suspension of the rules, which does not allow for amendments and requires approval from two-thirds of those present to pass. The legislation failed on a vote of 259 to 140. From a little bit farther in it, the vote capped an emotionally charged debate that kicked into high gear over the weekend after Walden and Burgess released their bill and said they planned a quick floor vote. The Senate passed a similar measure last summer. That was pushed by Senator Ron Johnson, Republican from Wisconsin. So, there was a bill on the floor that would allow people who are desperately ill to seek experimental treatments, and the government decided that you're not allowed to do that. Or they had already decided that you're not allowed to do that. They were considering allowing you to do that, and decided that's not a good idea. This is... uh. This is democracy, people. This is, this is, this is what you want <laughs> when you say you want a representative government or any government of any kind, really. What you're saying you want is an organization of people who are willing to hold a gun to your head to prevent you from getting treatments that you may or may not need, that you may or may not want, or that may or may not actually help you because they haven't decided that they're helpful enough or that they, they could be harmful. So we can't allow you to get treatment that you want. It's the same thing as medical marijuana and all this other stuff. It's, you know, keeping marijuana illegal, keeping trying to schedule Kratom as a as an illegal substance. All of this is just making sure that they own your avenues for medical care. Uh, yeah. People ask why I'm an anarchist. It's stories that are exactly like that that make me believe that anarchism is the most ethical uh, political ideology. So, moving on from that story, from that interesting piece of, I suppose, now dead legislation, unless they try to bring it back up again. Another story from the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, thefire.org. University police surveil student social media in an attempt to make campus safer by Ryan Weiss. Posted on March 16th, a very interesting article in Campus Safety Magazine explores a disturbing practice we've been hearing more and more about. Schools and campus police proactively surveilling students' social media accounts to find possible wrongdoing while it's happening. Ooh, I bumped my table. While it's happening or before it happens, if that idea troubles you, you're not alone. A lack of context. Campus Safety Magazine reports that the University of Virginia contracts with a service called Social Sentinel for $18,500 a year to monitor its students' public social media posts. It works by scanning students' social media accounts based on a library of harm of thousands of words curated by Social Sentinel in addition to words tailored to the specific school contracting with them. Posts from students containing words on these lists are forwarded to the police, who then decide whether or not to investigate the students. It's pre-crime! It's happening guys. It's it's uh it was never going to be Tom Cruise moving floating computer screens around in front of him. It it's it looks just like this. This is exactly what precogs telling you that someone's going to commit a crime and you've got to go stop it looks like. It's disturbing to me because well like they mentioned in this there's no context to any of the things that are being said. They just uh, uh, they they hit a word, and they decide that that now needs to go to the cops. We look at the context of the post, says University of Virginia police officer and crime analyst Beth Davis, and therein lies a the major problem. The whole context of a post is almost never available to someone as far removed from the post as an officer or school administrator reading it. Inocuous or inside jokes, and a whole host of other protected speech will often be completely lost on them, and could appear threatening without that crucial context. It's like memes. It's like universities shutting down meme pages on Facebook. It's 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 because they don't know what they're talking about. And this isn't rare for these people. But this is what they're doing. Uh, and this is, this this kind of, a lot of people would say something like, well, how is that bad? They're just keeping an eye out, things like that. This is why it's bad. And this is why it's bad in the context of the First Amendment. But this is also why it's bad ethically, uh, if you're not a person who is a constitutionalist a chilling effect. What's the harm in that, you may ask? Put yourself in the shoes of a student on campus. What would you do if you were aware that anything you post may be flagged by a school administration or police for containing one of the thousands of keywords on Social Sentinel's library of harm? A library which I doubt, by the way, this is my own, my own, not not from the story, but I seriously doubt that library is public. Back to the story. Do you make the decision to tweet less? Do you restrict your posts to friends only? It seems hard to imagine how you would moderate, how you could moderate your tweets to avoid thousands of words when you have no idea what they are. And assume you do get flagged and questioned by police. Many people would probably change their behavior. And while people might want to be mindful of what they post publicly online, fear of police and of their school monitoring them and misrepresenting their messages shouldn't be something students have to navigate. This is called a chilling effect on speech. A chilling effect on speech. This is, laws get overturned, practices get overturned, because they have a chilling effect on free expression. You don't have to be putting people in jail for saying things, you only have to threaten them that if they say a thing that you think might be wrong, something's going to happen to them. That's called a chilling effect on speech, and it has been upheld by the... uh, the Supreme Court of the United States, as a thing that is wrong for government to do. And these universities are government institutions. That's been upheld time and time again. Move on, move on, move on to another, to another interesting, I think, constitutional issue, but uh, also ethical one. From the Fifth Column News, cakes guns discrimination and freedom of association post on a march 15th in the wake of the mass shooting at the high school in parkland florida a number of businesses have moved to distance themselves from scary looking weapons like the ar-15 from younger purchases of weapons in general and from organizations that don't support laws supporting the second amendment to the u.s constitution whether these moves are from sincere conviction or mere concern for bottom lines they're provoking backlash Retailers like Walmart and Dick's Sporting Goods face multiple discrimination lawsuits from 18 to 21 year olds over their corporate decisions to stop selling guns to that age group. These lawsuits are not about gun rights any more than Masterpiece Cake Shop Limited versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission, now before the U.S. Supreme Court, is about same-sex marriage rights. And to break into the story, that's that's the uh, the cake shop in Colorado that refused to bake the cake the gay wedding cake, and so they took them to court over it, and now that's in front of the Supreme Court. Back to the story. Both sets of cases, arguments to the contrary notwithstanding, are clearly about freedom of association. If a baker doesn't want to make a wedding cake for a same-sex wedding, he shouldn't have to. It's his right to do business or not with whomever he wants, for whatever reasons are important to him. If a store owner doesn't want to sell an AR-15 to an 18-year-old, she shouldn't have to. It's her right to do business or not with whomever she wants, for whatever reasons are important to her. Of course, many who take one side on one of the topics above take the opposite side on the other. Conservatives, because they hate same-sex marriage and love guns. Progressives, because they love same-sex marriage and hate guns. Each group considers its desired ends too important to abstain from hypocrisy as the means of achieving those ends. This is a fucking great story. I love this story so much because it calls out what I've been talking to people on Twitter about. In fact, I got in an argument with a guy um, who was saying that these stores refusing to sell firearms to 18 to 21 year olds was against the law somehow. And I I fail to see that. Of course, it's probably a state-by-state issue, but I fail to see how 18- to 21-year-olds would be a legally protected class. All right, thank you, Ixie. Ixie did confirm that that list of of words is not publicly available, but it might be available to school administrators. That's not clear. But uh, it is not available to the public. You can't just go to their website and find the list of words that you're going to get in trouble for using. In any case, yeah, th- that's one of the things this this uh, this fifth column story is perfect because it points out that if you are in favor of freedom association in the cake baking case, but you're against freedom of association in the uh, Dix and Walmart cases, then uh, you're being hypocritical. You don't actually support freedom of association. You either are anti-gay, anti-gay or you're and, and pro-gun or you're anti-gun and pro-gay. But that's not what either of these issues are about. This is about freedom of association. This is about the right of a business owner to do business with whom they choose. And no one talks about that. And no one wants to be honest with themselves about that. Oh, goodness. Moving on, another fifth column story that I like quite a bit. I like the fifth column as a news source. They're really good. I I, I talked to the guy who runs the thing. He's... He's a really, really smart, interesting, cool guy. Veteran as well. Um, Trump nominees, Troubling History on Torture, posted March 14th. In response to President Donald Trump's nomination of Mike Pompeo to be Secretary of State and Gina Haspel, CIA Director, please find the following response from Sarah Margon, Washington Director of Human Rights Watch. U.S. President Donald Trump's decision to nominate Mike Pompeo to be Secretary of State and Gina Haspel to succeed him as a CIA director is deeply troubling because of their past endorsements of torture. During his CIA confirmation hearing on January 12, 2017, Pompeo failed to unequivocally disavow the U.S. government's use of torture and mass surveillance. In January 2018, speech on interrogation methods, Pompeo again missed an opportunity to reject torture and suggested coercive methods were acceptable. If Pompeo was confirmed to be the global face of the U.S. government, his views on torture would harm the standing of the U.S. abroad. Haspel is credibly reported to have run a CIA black site in Thailand as part of a U.S. program that used torture after the 9-11 attacks. She later served as chief of staff to Jose Rodriguez, who led the CIA's counterterrorism center from approximately 2002 to 2004. In these positions, she would have been directly involved in the CIA's notorious and unlawful retention, uh, uh, reddition, detention, and interrogation program. The government should investigate Haspel for past violations, not nominate her for higher office. Given their histories, the potential for Pompeo and and Haspel to endorse abusive practices and lend support for their use abroad should convince the Senate to reject both nominations. Uh, Both of these people are going to get confirmed. But Human Rights Watch uh, points out very, very true facts about these people's history with torture, about these people's support of torture, about especially that black site in Thailand story is incredible because these black sites are all over, and they do exist in the United States. I believe it was in Chicago not long ago that one of them was uncovered. Uh, these black sites are are uh, a tool that are often used by not just the CIA, but also other, uh, let's call them government law enforcement, federal law enforcement branches. Um, yeah, I I find this very interesting. I don't know who would expect Trump to be against torture. He seems like exactly the kind of guy who would be very, uh, pro, uh, what's their phraseology, uh, enhanced interrogation, right? He seems exactly like he would be in support of all of that. Um, I, I personally, I, I think it's fucking wrong. and stupid, but, and it doesn't work. We know statistically, torture doesn't get you the answers. It gets you the answers you want, but not the ones you need. All right, that's kind of the uh, the problem with tortures. People will tell you whatever they, whatever they want, whatever they think you want to hear, in order to make the pain stop or the discomfort stop. In the case of uh, of waterboarding. <laughs> Moving on. Next story. <clears throat> I'm sure you guys heard that that Google and Twitter are banning crypto ads. Uh ads that are related to cryptocurrencies and things like that. Um it's it's I'm not really sure what their logic is about that, but it's whatever. Uh from Zero Hedge, what Google's ban for crypto ads really means, posted on the 18th of March. Uh, Submitted by Nicholas Kolos of Datatrick Research. In recent news, uh, the recent news that Google will not allow advertising on cryptocurrencies is a good reason to revisit the fundamental drivers that predict Bitcoin price trends. Google searches and Bitcoin wallet growth continue to slow in 2018, which is all you need to know about the near-term direction of the asset. But while Google's move may slow future adoption rates, plenty of other banned items—drugs, hacking software, counterfeit goods, etc.—still manage to flourish. An imperfect set of comps, to be sure, but still relevant to the discussion. There are only four things Google doesn't allow you to advertise on its search engine platform. Number one, counterfeit goods. Number two, dangerous products or services like recreational drugs, weapons, ammunition, explosives, fireworks, and tobacco products. Number three, anything that enables dishonest behavior such as hacking software, services to artificially inflate web or ad traffic, fake documents, or academic cheating. Uh, breaking into it, I, I would be interested to see if Hack 5, uh, if, if Hack 5 advertises through Google. Um, in fact, I can actually just test that right now. If I just type in hack 5, the first result is not an ad. All right, cool. Um, maybe that's maybe that is that standard is kept then. Um, all right Number uh, number four, inappropriate content such as hate speech or ads that use profane language. As of June of this year, you can add one more. Anything about cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. The prohibition is actually quite broad. Quote, cryptocurrencies and related content, including but not limited to initial coin offerings, cryptocurrency exchanges, cryptocurrency wallets, and cryptocurrency trading advice. Unquote. Frankly, it's hard to blame Google or Facebook, which put a similar ban into place recently, for the move given the level of fraud and deception in the space. The phrase goat rodeo comes to mind, except goats are at least cute so that is what is happening with crypto uh crypto seems to have leveled off in fact it's dropping uh, relatively consistently over the past month or so i know my asset, assets have um i don't hold very much but it it has been dropping relatively uh let me check my ethereum wallet right now ethereum was at like 17 just a little bit ago a little bit meaning uh week slash weeks right uh it was around 17 and holding and now it's down to around 10 and holding it's been like that for a couple of days so yeah uh, i think crypto honestly where crypto is concerned i think the first the first point that i want to make about this is that a correction was always coming the the prices i i think 10 bucks uh and holding for my Ethereum assets, I had 17 again a couple of weeks ago, um, Is it makes more sense <laughs> than the amount of money that was that uh, crypto was worth not long ago. Um, let me look at crypto charts. If I go to corn market cap, And I look at Bitcoin right now, yeah, it's, it's seven day graphs are, are pretty dramatic drops, uh, across the board in crypto from, uh, in, in Bitcoin's case from just over 9,600 down to right now about, uh, 7,800, that's a pretty dramatic drop off over the last seven days, especially since everything's holding and trending down. Tether is one of the only coins that's actually fluctuating wildly right now, but everything else tends to be trending down. Um, Ethereum ethereum's down to 528 528 bucks a coin. yeah, I think I think a lot of these prices make more sense for crypto. Just because it was ridiculous before. It was insane. Um, I, I don't think it makes any sense some of the prices that, that we were seeing. Um, especially just about uh, how long? About about five months ago or so when stuff was at their peak. Those prices were nuts. The peak Bitcoin price was uh, 19000 That's low actually. That's not the peak. I'm just off peak where my mouse is right now but it was it broke 20 i mean it it was incredibly expensive so uh, it those a correction was always going to come and i believe that i believe that prices are going to stay low now i think they're going to not i mean i don't think these prices are low i think these prices are more reasonable than uh what they were before i don't know i'm i'm pro down market for crypto i guess because I want it to actually be used as a currency, uh, as a currency alternative. (laughs) Ixy says, man, I remember back when, uh, one Bitcoin was $200. I should have bought some then. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I found out about it in high school back when Bitcoin was down. It was not long after it started actually that I first found out about it. Um, I told my dad about it, and he said that's never gonna be worth anything and he's been talking for the last several months about being a little embarrassed about having taken that uh, that approach (laughs) but um, no it's I I think these prices are better honestly for the for cryptocurrency as a whole and for the projects to actually survive moving forward I think we had to have lower prices and all these hodlers that are trying to go to the moon they're gonna be disappointed I'm afraid they're going to be very disappointed. Uh, crypto is supposed to be a utility. It's supposed to be a currency. You're supposed to be able to use it and spend it. Um, at those prices, it wasn't possible. Bitcoin, it's still not possible. Bitcoin's a thing. Look, I understand Bitcoin as as being the progenitor of all of this, being the start of all of this. People are still very loyal to Bitcoin, but I'm telling you guys... Bitcoin's never going to succeed the way you want it to because it can't be used as a currency. At this point, the blockchain's too... It's just its just too hard to do the math. It's too hard to do the math. It costs an extra 30% on whatever you're doing to use Bitcoin for anything. It's too expensive. I could see Bitcoin as being a thing to peg other crypto prices to, but that's about it. It's never going to be used as a currency, Ever. It just does, it's just not scalable. Uh, And you can say, people make arguments about the scalability of Bitcoin. It is too, it is too scalable. It was first and it's still good. It just now got expensive because all these people just bought into it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay. Except that Ethereum's never been that expensive to use, ever. And I don't pull for any of these. I don't care which of these cryptos, especially altcoins, succeed. I just want crypto to succeed. And by sticking with Bitcoin, acting like Bitcoin is going to be the thing we're going to be using, you're fooling yourself. You're hurting the cause. So, moving on from that, I said, uh, pre-stream, I said I was going to be talking about a Quillet article, and I am. This one's by Kevin Leach, posted March 17th. Against Intellectual Rent Seekers. I'm just gonna read a little bit of the second paragraph because I I find that interesting, and you should go read the whole thing. Quill well, it, it's long articles they're 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 kind of they're more essays than anything else. Usually some of them you know around a thousand words, but some of them are are much longer than that. But it's all very smart stuff. And uh, second paragraph, intellectual rent seeking is a devious tactic capable of achieving aims without indicating directly what those aims might be, and it allows its practitioners to act in a way that stops short of alerting too many people of its use. Economic rent-seeking sees the leaders of one entity try to outdo their competitors, not through innovation and the delivery of a superior product, but by lobbying for changes in the playing field to tilt against those competitors. The example of taxi licensing should suffice to illustrate the point. A city's, uh, uh, a city's patricians lobby their municipal administration to require that taxi drivers acquire strictly enforced and rationed licenses these urban worthies then buy up all the licenses and rent them out to working class men and women in a prerequisite employment as a prerequisite to employment in the end the license holders have a legally enforced source of passive income one that requires nothing more than a campaign donation which represents only a fraction of the potential profit in the same way, intellectual rent-seeking sees the proponents of certain ideas, often those that are difficult to support with reasoned arguments, attempt to make opposing ideas unpalatable by a variety of illegitimate means. In the case of Charles Murray, an attempt has been made to disqualify his social science scholarship and destroy his reputation with allegations of racism. For Jordan Peterson, it is alleged his ideas about innate gender difference on and campus speech codes will cause irreparable harm. And as the inquisitorial interview of Lindsay Shepard demonstrated, rent seekers will claim that exposing students to ideas they oppose runs contrary, not only to campus policy, but to Canadian law itself. The common thread that runs through all of these cases is the instrumental use of society's laudable opposition to racism, harm, and criminality to disparage and discredit those who espouse ideas they dislike. The article continues, but I'm going to stop. That is a, that's the kind of thing that I actually talk about in the article that I'll be posting in conjunction with this podcast. And uh, without further ado, let's actually get into that topic. The article that I've written has to do with Me Too, the Me Too movement, and what it reveals about American sexual culture, right? I think it's very important to talk about this, and I think there are things in this article that uh, follow along the lines of that Quillet article, the idea of intellectual rent-seeking that happens. Uh, Well, I'll just get into it, and you'll see where it is. This is going to be partially me going off the cuff and partially me reading from the article that I've written. First, a little bit of history. On October 5th, the Me Too movement was properly kicked off when Ashley Judd publicly accused Harvey Weinstein of making highly inappropriate sexual advances toward herself and others. I say highly inappropriate, but it was. that's relatively soft language for what he was accused of. Stories from other celebrities followed in a torrent of accusations against Weinstein that were, at best, allegations of a pattern of sexual harassment and, at worst, allegations of actual, real rape, with all the area in between filled in by the Photoshop paint bucket tool called Masturbating into Potted Plants and Making People Watch. That was one of the things that he was accused of doing, was literally jerking it into a potted plant and making somebody watch. (laughs) That's, oh, that's got to be horrifying, this fat toad of a man. Oh, good God. I don't even want to think about that. That's so gross. During the process of raising Weinstein's empire to the ground, another high, other high-profile celebrities found themselves in the crosshairs. While both men and women were accused of such conduct, only the men really made the headlines. Take from that what you will. It's not really pertinent to this conversation. The movement was co-opted with blinding speed by organized feminist and leftist institutions, and have continued to steamroll pe- uh, that have continued to steamroll high-profile people ever since, and no one has really cared to look into the veracity of many of these claims, instead opting to hashtag believe all women. If you dare question an accuser's story, you are a racist, a fascist, a misogynist, and probably a Trump supporter and a rapist, according to the droves of neo-feminists who will have your Twitter notifications looking like Nagasaki the day after Fat Man. And that's one of the uh, that's that that's the part that ties back into intellectual rent-seeking. It's that if you dare to say a thing that is contrary to the uh... the whims of the dishonest masses who can't have an actual conversation you are automatically going to be labeled with all of these terrible awful horrible things because that's the only way that you can be discredited the insanity of assuming honesty based on nothing but chromosomal pairings aside i find myself concerned with the social ramifications of such a movement i'll start by saying this and this i think is an important point Me Too was inevitable. I'll need to think more about whether it was actually necessary, but it was absolutely inevitable. The actions men like Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey are alleged to have taken are, if accurate, absolutely unforgivable and disgusting. And if such actions are as rampant as we're led to believe, then a movement like Me Too has been slowly boiling over on the back burner for a very long time. This was always going to happen. This was always going to happen. But the problem is, there's been damage done. Some of the accusations that have been made, not only as a part of Me Too, but also as a function of neo-feminist rhetoric, are worth talking about at the very least. The pervasive attitude that drunken sexual encounters are automatically rape, regardless of whether the man was drunk as well, is one such idea. As is the expectation that all women automatically be believed when they make a public accusation. Me Too has proven that a woman can simply regret a bad sexual encounter or semi-sexual encounter and call it some form of sexual misconduct, as is believed to have happened with Aziz Ansari's accuser. If you remember the, um, the Aziz Ansari thing, somebody wrote a story about Aziz Ansari, a date with him being the worst night of her life, and... Many people who read that, even people who were on the side of Me Too, read that and said, oh my god, fuck you, it was a bad date, and you regret going on it, and now you're saying it was, there was sexual misconduct. And this is something that's happened before, we remember the Mattress Girl story, Mattress Girl was a liar. There have been, a, there have been several stories about young men being kicked out, of, kicked out of college due to rape accusations, and the women involved being liars. It happens, but that's not the point either. There are really good things happening as a result of Me Too, but there are damaging things happening as well. Damaging to public discourse, damaging to the reputations of the perhaps falsely accused, and damaging to the interactions of men and women alike who are just trying to get laid. And those who are arguing against these damaging aspects most fervently and most publicly are absolutely missing the point. You don't fix this by citing false rape claim statistics or instances of men being raped trying to level the playing field of victimhood. That doesn't fix the problem. You have to transcend victimhood. You have to find the actual cause and fix what's broken there. If you can't fix what's broken, you'll, uh, you'll go insane. I think what's broken is that American attitudes towards sex and sex education are absolutely and totally out of touch with reality. Women are by and large not taught that they are beings for whom sex should be a fun exercise in the most extreme heights that human physiology can produce. They are instead told that sex is shameful, their desire to have sex is shameful, and all men want to get in their pants. They aren't taught to own their sexuality, to exercise their sexuality in a way that is healthy and safe, but rather that their sexuality is a thing that will be stolen from them as soon as they decide to take it out for a spin. This is, this is, this is step one of creating this kind of volatile situation that we find ourselves in. Social pressures on women and girls in the United States ignore one very important fact. Women want to have sex. Maybe not with you, but with someone. And maybe not all the time, but sometimes. Women are humans. They have the same biological imperatives that men have. And they are shamed for it. Because of the way people view female sexuality, the way that men are taught to exercise their sexuality has to be made destructive as well. Men have to be told that no doesn't mean no because women are told to say no even if they mean yes. Rather than focusing on honesty and respect in sexual encounters, we have turned getting laid into a sick cat-and-mouse game of self-denial and confusion in which the victims are the men who are not rapists, but who, find, but who don't know they're making a massive mistake until it's too late. And more tragically, and more importantly, the victims are the women who literally mean no when they say no, and they get ignored. Most men are not rapists. And most women are not victims of rape that is a testament to humanity given the situation that these hormone-fueled sexually confused people have been brought up in denying these things is indicative of massive social ignorance i think and the people who deny it the neo-feminists the sex negative misandrists those people and also the puritanical erotophobic assholes in the right they don't know what they're fucking talking about. They're not being honest about what the actual problem is. We've absolutely fucked this up. Absolutely. For 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 the girls mostly. But also for 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 the sons, for for our boys. And this isn't an issue of the patriarchy and it's not an issue of morality, it's an issue of honesty. We're not being honest with kids. We're not being honest with women and girls. We're not being honest with with boys and men. And that makes it easy to fix, frankly. Counter to the neo-feminists who would like to indoctrinate our kids to vilify men and sex and and the puritanical morons who would use the school system to induce erotophobia in children, we can tell our sons and daughters alike that they are not entitled to sex but that their sexuality is part of who they are and should be practiced safely, healthfully, respectfully, and at their discretion and no one else's. We should shout this message from the rooftops and viciously deride anyone who would shame another person for their sexuality, be they neo-feminists or puritanical assholes. We can can fix this by rejecting the extremes of the way we're taught to view sex and instead opt for honesty and maturity. We can trust kids to make the right call so long as we give them the means and education to do so. That's how you fix this problem. That's what Me Too actually reveals. If you're looking at it from a balanced perspective, if you're looking at Me Too objectively, you've seen the good things it's done. But you've also seen the damage that it's done. And it has done damage. People want to deny that the Me Too movement has harmed anything. That is simply false. And the me too me too only exists because of these issues that I've outlined. because women are shamed for being sexual beings from a very young age. and men are brought up to try and, to try and fill that sick gap by ignoring the, the sexual individualism of women. If we would just be honest with people, if we would just be honest of to kids, with kids, if we would just teach kids to be respectful of other human beings instead of trying to fix what Puritanism has broken with wrong-headedness, we can actually have a society where the only time that people say they've been raped is when they've been raped. And the only time that people rape is when they're rapists. Because that's simply, that's just not, it's just not that simple right now. It can be that simple. But we have to start being honest and we have to, we gotta let women off the leash and we gotta teach men we have to let men know that women are off the leash it's that simple and with that said I think we can do it I think we can do it with that said let's uh let's end the show that's all I really have to say right now I was exactly right 39 minutes and 35 seconds I said right before we started the show I had about 40 minutes worth of material oh goodness I like having these conversations, though. I like talking about this stuff. I think we can solve these problems pretty easily. Remember, you can get a hold of me at DinoFiles on Twitter. No spaces, no dashes. Find older episodes. Find other shows as well on A-I-R-A-D dot I-O. And you can find the pieces that go along with these podcasts at RogueFile.com. I love talking to you guys, and thank you very, very much for listening. You have a great week. This show is part of the Alternative Internet Radio Podcast Network. For more great shows like this, visit AIR at dot i o.